20 pages a week, where together you and I will read all the way through the Bible in a year. I am Hal Hammonds, and I'm here to help. I'll supply one story to grab my attention, one verse I found particularly interesting, and one word that I couldn't get out of my mind. The rest is up to you. This is Quarter 1, Lesson 1. The reading is Genesis chapters 1 through 24. We'll start with my first impressions. Names, and lots of them. Names are on my mind because this year, for the first time, I am engaging in a color marking plan as I read through the Bible. I got the idea from my good friend Chris Emerson, and his plan involves, among many other things, boxing in every name in pencil. My Bible is a bit of a mess after 24 chapters. Did you know there's a man named Joktan in the Bible who has 13 sons? All 13 of them are boxed in in my Bible, and Joktan himself is boxed in twice. Chris insists that this is going to be a good thing. It's going to be very helpful, and I trust Chris, so I'm going to stick with it. In reality, names are a very important part of the story. Every name is a story. Every name is a snippet of history, especially in the book of Genesis. Everyone's story matters, including the little ones. There is a man named Enoch who appears in Genesis chapter 5, whose entire story consists of three verses. In those three verses, he does two things. He brings into existence the man who lived longer than any other we have record of, a man named Methuselah who lived 969 years. And he walked with God, for God took him. Evidently meaning he did not experience death in the way that you and I expect to one of these days. Not much of a story, but what a story it is. You're going to find a lot of those stories in the Bible. A lot of times people will pop up and do something absolutely incredible and then just disappear. That doesn't mean they're not important. Everyone's important. You're important too. Whatever your story is going to be is what you make it out to be. You're not going to be in the Bible, of course. That doesn't mean you're not important. Our name is written in the book of life if we are walking by faith in Jesus. And it's a comfort to know that the things that we do are remembered by our Lord recognized in life, and recognized afterward. Maybe one of these days somebody will write a book about you. Make sure it's a good one. One story is tough to settle on in this particular reading. You'll get tired of me saying that probably over the next 52 weeks, but it's especially true in the first half of Genesis. I settled on the story of Lot and Sodom in Genesis 18 and 19 for a couple of reasons. One, it is the second longest story in our reading other than the flood story. And it may be the most frequently referenced story from this reading other than the creation story itself and perhaps the flood story as well. And it begins with a story about hospitality. Abraham sees a couple of strangers outside of his tent and he welcomes them in. He feeds them. He treasures their presence. He wants to be in their company. And because of his generosity, because of his general character, there is a promise of a child. His wife, Sarah, who is barren, is going to have a baby by the time they come back the next year. And then after having had that conversation, God, who is in the form of one of these men who's walking around, discusses the fate of a city named Sodom and the surrounding cities, a city where his nephew Lot lives. Abraham intercedes. He doesn't want Sodom to die, at least in part, because he doesn't want Lot and his family to die. And so he asks if God would really destroy a city if 50 righteous souls were in it. And God says, no, he would not. 
and he bargains and bargains and bargains and works down to 10. And then God disappears. It's an interesting place to stop because it would seem on the surface that five souls would have been there. Lot is there with his wife. His two daughters have two men that they have decided to spend their life with. That's six right there. But when God's representatives come to Sodom and start looking around, it's pretty obvious. Not only are there not 10, not only are there not six, there's not even four, really. And you could argue by the end of the story, there's only one. Is God just playing with Abraham here? Or is this an actual fact-finding mission? Exactly how God accomplishes tasks in his mind, we don't have full insight into that. But what we do have is a story of these angels in the form of men coming to visit Sodom and camping out in the open square. And Lot sees them, and clearly Lot has learned his hospitality lessons from Abraham. He is determined to have them in his house. And we found out soon at least part of the reason why he does that. It's simply not safe in Sodom in the middle of the night for two strangers. He welcomes them into his home, and he's prepared to take care of them, but strangers intervene. The neighbors want to have their way. You know the story about Sodom. And as a result of this, it becomes evident that God's measure of 10 is not going to be met. The city is going to be destroyed, and Lot and his family need to vacate as quickly as possible. Verse 29 tells us that Abraham's intervention, at least in part, is credited for the salvation of Lot. It would have been nice to save Lot's wife also. It would have been nice if his daughters had turned out to be more righteous than they turned out to be. But nevertheless, because Abraham intervened and because God is righteous, he was determined, whether the number was 50 or 10 or 1, to not allow righteous souls to die in this holocaust. This is brought up by the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, where Lot is the example of a righteous soul that was not permitted to die in a wicked culture. And this is one of the reasons why the Lot story is so important to us, because we're in a wicked culture too. We could have debates, pointless debates, about whether our culture is as wicked as Sodom's was. The bottom line is we are caught up in a culture of depravity. And oftentimes we see the effects of it, even in our own close families, even on our own selves. But God knows those who are his, and we can have confidence that righteous souls will be able to survive even in these hostile environments. The Lord knows how to deliver righteous souls out of hardship, out of pain and turmoil and destruction, which is a good thing because destruction is coming for this world. It may or may not come to your hometown. It may or may not come to this nation that we live in, but it's coming to planet Earth. Peter talks about that also in his second epistle. The question is not whether it will come. The question is who will be found faithful in that day? Will we be among those? What we need to do as we see the day coming is make sure that we are ready. Make sure that when God comes to claim us, we're ready to go. Remember, even Lot himself was hesitant about leaving. He dragged his feet mightily. In fact, it seems that he dragged his feet all night. It was almost morning by the time he finally left his home. Let's not be that ornery. Let's realize what we are leaving. Let's realize what we are going to. God has great things in mind for you. God has salvation in mind for you. He doesn't want you to be destroyed. So don't destroy yourself. The one verse is Genesis 6 verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God.
What an amazing concept that is. The first time that grace appears in the Bible, and it's in the context of an utterly depraved world. You want to talk about two cities, four cities that were ready to be destroyed. Here's an entire planet, an entire human race that's ready to be destroyed. But Noah found grace, not because he was perfect, not because he was sinless. In fact, as soon as he gets off the ark, he starts proving how non-sinless he is. But he loves God, and he wants to be part of God's plan. He is no doubt the inheritor of the faith of men like Enoch, for instance, and others who had gone before. As bad as the world had gotten, as prominent as Cain's race had become, and probably seen their wickedness and depravity bleed over into Seth's race as well, there were still people of faith. They were few in number by the time the flood came. In fact, they were eight in number in a population that has been estimated by some to be as much as a billion souls. Think about that the next time you think that you're overwhelmed by sin in a sinful world today. This is how God deals with sin. And this is how God deals with righteous people in the midst of sin. We would like God to fix the world, but he doesn't do that. He gives us a way out of the world. That means we have to trust him. We have to get on the ark by trusting in him, by working his things, by standing up against evil, we will be protected. Yes, we'll be ridiculed. Yes, we'll be inconvenienced. We will sacrifice in the short term, but it will be worth it. God promises us that. Can we have that kind of confidence? Can we find grace in a sinful world? Jesus says yes. By trusting in God, by going where he has told us to go, including, by the way, through baptism, which is used again by the Apostle Peter to emphasize the power of grace that delivers sinful souls and it helps them be saved. 1 Peter 3.21, baptism now saves you, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. It is likened to the flood of Noah. If you trust in God, God will deliver you just like he delivered Noah, not by fixing the world, but by helping fix you. I want to leave you with the word believed, as in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. There are believers and there are unbelievers, and God asks us to be the first. That doesn't mean that we're perfect. That doesn't mean that we will not ebb and flow in our faith, as Abraham does. Very famously, he has extremely low moments, moments when it looks like he has completely abandoned faith, but he hasn't. He's just weak, like we all are. God can use weak people. God can lift up weak people. God can and will encourage weak people. And in the end, if they are found faithful, if they can find that faith in a sick and twisted world, it'll be accounted to them as righteousness as well. What a blessing it is to live under grace having confidence we don't have to be perfect any more than Abraham had to be perfect, any more than Noah or any other soul that we read about in this text. We just have to believe. And yes, believing is a complicated concept. Believing does involve some measure of obedience, some measure of consistency, a behavior pattern that shows the faith that's working inside of us. I've read James chapter 2. But if we are going to be right with God, 
it starts with believing. And God promises that he will find the believers, and he will lift up the believers. He will ultimately reward the believers. Abraham has promised great things because of his faith. And we're promised great things too. We're wandering in a foreign land just like Abraham was, and Isaac and Jacob after him. They were believing in the city whose builder and maker is God. We don't have that fleshed out for us very much in the book of Genesis, but we do have it mentioned in Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. We're looking for a city as well. And we can continue to look for that city, even as our eyesight grows dim, because we are seeing by faith and not by our literal physical sight. We believe that God is working great things in us, and we're anxious to see the end of the story. So don't quit on God because he hasn't quit on you. Thanks for listening to 20 Pages a Week. Please don't hesitate to reach out with your stories about your trip through the Bible this year. I'd love to hear from you. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with your friends. And check out my other podcast, Citizen of Heaven. I'll see you next week. God bless and keep reading.